Welcome to Dad Rocks, a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. Hello and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm your host, Josh, and today my guest is Tom Maxwell. Tom is most well known for being part of the band Squirrelnut Zippers during the 1990s, particularly because he wrote and sang lead on their biggest hit, Hell. Since leaving the band in 1999, Tom continued to make music, but recently has become more well known for his writing. He wrote a memoir called Hell on his time in the Squirrelnut Zippers and wrote several articles for the now defunct Al Jazeera America. But most importantly, Tom is the father of two now-grown children, including a son who battled leukemia as a young child. You'll hear all about these things in the upcoming conversation. But before we get to it, I wanted to let you know that at times you will hear us mention topics that we say we talked about earlier. However, they were not recorded. Before we started recording, we talked for about 15 minutes, discussing a variety of things like music venues and some info about his kids. So I just wanted to let you know and give you the heads up so that you're not thinking, well, did I miss something earlier? No, you didn't. It's just that we were talking a lot before we clicked uh, record. I also want to let you know this is a very long conversation, but a very engaging one. So I hope that you enjoy it and stick with it through the entire one hour and 45 minutes. So preemptive, thank you for doing so. And now on to my conversation with Tom Maxwell. Tom, welcome to Dad Rocks. Hey, Josh. Thank you for having me in my squeaky chair. It's okay. <laughs> I just, I just want to say, um, this is, it's truly an honor for me. I, oh we'll no. get to this later. No, I was a huge <laughs> fan of Squirrel Nut Zippers in, um, in my middle school and early high school days. Okay. Um, and when you left the band, uh, and I bought your first album, Sam Sarah, I actually emailed you. Wow, you did. On your wow. Yahoo account, and I, Fuck. I was telling you, and I said. Thank you know this is so much better than bedlam bedlam ballroom so thank you for this and I, I was like and then you wrote back to me and I was really like I was so ecstatic it was like my first like quote unquote celebrity interaction that was <laughs> so my next I, question <laughs> was was I cool enough to to respond yeah. so yes you were so thank you for that I I do so this is our second time you know kind of wow. talking but That's so cool um, thank you for being one of the ten people that bought Samsara. <laughs> No, it's. Uh, I was actually going back and listening to it again, and I, I, I still enjoy it. It's very eclectic. Um, it is, and I really do appreciate it. Um, so, you know, but while we were emailing each other back and forth, you were mentioning that you just you were finishing up a manuscript uh, for a new book. I am. Um, I did. I did. I finished up the draft manuscript for a really strange and wonderful time. The Chapel Hill music scene, nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety nine. That is so like in my wheelhouse. Um, I just talked to uh, your friend um, Django Haskins recently. Yeah, great uh, guy. And yeah, he is a phenomenal man. Um, and you know, we'll we'll talk about this later. But I'm a huge Ben Folds Five fan. Um, <laughs> Me too. So, like so, yeah. And so you know that whole scene um, in a, is like really important to me because it really kind of 
just, you know, Ben Folds 5 and Squirrel Nut Zippers really, you know, informed my musical taste and really, you know, made me, it was, it was, it was kind of my identity um, in, in high school and middle school. So that is a book I am definitely going to purchase. And your first book, and I, I just discovered it as we were emailing back and forth, is you wrote a book about your time with Squirrel Nut Zippers, correct? Yes, yes, I did. It's called Hell. My life is called a zippers, <laughs> mostly named because that was the name of the single that I wrote. Yes, but there was a little yeah. bit of hell of being in there too, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, the 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 uh, Chapel Hill book's going to be out uh, on Hachette and let's say spring of twenty four. So you'll have oh, to nice. wait a minute. But like Ben's in it, Robert Sledge is in it, nice. Ken Mosier from Zippers. Mm-hmm. But then again, of course, the guys from Super Chunk mm-hmm. and Archers of Loaf and yeah. Paul Vo. And then other bands that you may not be aware of unless you were there at the time who are super important to me, Metal Flake Mother, um, who you should go look up on YouTube right now, mm-hmm. and Zen Frisbee. Um, and I'm really talking about, I'm really making a case. I'm not making a case. I'm, I'm, I experienced what I call the genius of community. And so that's what the book is really about. It's like, it's not just a bunch of individuated, talented creative people it is actually a community that sort of forms the thing i talked to mark klein from love tractor you know from athens and he said okay. well if if the scene was a cold we were the sneezes and i'm like yeah I, yeah I totally get it that community and again i will probably dive into this a little later but you know yeah. just first talking from django and when he you know was uh telling me about how he got down to, to North Carolina when he moved he said Darren Jesse from Ben Folds 5 yeah. who he was friends with told him to contact you who then you told him who to contact in that area to when he was creating um, you know his you know first off you know after International Orange when he was he was creating um, oh my god the uh, his, his, his current band uh, and I damn it uh, this no, is what I'm uh, supposed to remember <laughs> oh god Django I'm sorry Oh, the old ceremony. Now it's coming to me. The old course. ceremony. That's right. But, you know, like, yeah, Mark Simonson, who I wanted to play vibes in the band I was trying to form before I got into Squirrel Nut Zippers. He was in a band called Flying Mice and he played vibes. And I probably told Django to go talk to yeah. him. And But see, this is, well, I mean, you know, this is community. This is what you do. That's cool, right. though. And Darren Jesse. Oh, my God. The drummer I always wanted to be. Great guy. Terrific posture. He his his style was is always interesting to me because yeah. he was very almost like rigid in his playing. I'm a drummer, so like you know, I was I look for guys who are more fluid. But his style, a little rigid, but he was so in the pocket and every, perfect for that band. Every minute, what I liked about him is that you know, I came up listening to those those rock and roll drummers that were trained by jazz guys, right? So like. Um, Ringo Starr or Kenny mm-hmm. Jones from Small Faces yep. or Mitch Mitchell, of course, and they're playing cross stick and they're playing all these tubby triplety fills, you know, back in like 1967 and stuff. Well, I, I just couldn't get enough of that. You know, whoever that fucking dude was in, in uh, Procol Harum, you know, a monster. <laughs> yeah. And and so Darren was the only other guy who was like, yeah, I you know, obviously way more chops than me, but like was coming from that sort of place of like, almost like, who is it? Elvin Bishop or somebody like that, you know, in the way that he played. Elvin as Jones. Po- Elvin Jones, Elvin, as opposed Elvin to like... Elvin Bishop was the, the guitarist, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as opposed to the really straight, 
the really straight sort of non-syncopated rock guys we may be getting off topic here no but it's, it's I, fine. I love this talking is, shop yeah it's this is <laughs> no this is great because it's you know that's as a drummer you, i kind of like figure out what i like i've, I've you know was cross spectrums like always trying to listen to different drummers and then you hear someone like um you know when i was uh, for my bar mitzvah i was given mahavishnu's intermounting flame yeah so who's playing I'm drums hearing, in that so i'm hearing billy cobham play for the oh, first billy cobham time. yeah and God it's just damn, like he's good <laughs> yeah it's just like that you know that's a monster and then you you know that i was already like kind of going down the fusion road so i'm listening to like peter erskine uh, erskine from weather report you know mm -hmm. all those guys who played um in that band and you know, then you find about Tony Williams, and and it's just like, oh, you know, all that. And then I, I discover Medeski, Martin, and Wood. And oh god, uh, those guys! We played it, gigs with those guys. Yeah, very nice, very sweet guys. Yeah, we had Billy Martin on the show. Um, I've taken a couple lessons from him. He lives like up the road from me. Oh, um, lucky and he you. Is, he's well, he's a great, he's a great dude. And but his style is totally different than anyone else. It's so free and just learning about you know improvisation as a as a drummer and just a musician in general, how to listen and how to like kind of interact with nothing you know yeah. and, and kind of be in your own space so yeah like finding and as a drummer like i went from the neil peart like oh i want to play as much as possible like you know be yeah, very yeah. like yeah. to like finally realizing my late like mid to late 20s like i'm a pocket drummer i don't do things fancy i just keep a good beat i have good feel that's all i need and that's what bands that makes a good okay. band so. and pursuant to that yeah the Perhaps, I mean, one of the dudes who resides on my personal Mount Olympus is Al Jackson Jr., who played yes, in, with, in, yes. was in Stax Vault on everybody's yeah. records, but was in, um, not the Bar Case, but... Um, no, uh, uh, wow, I'm, I'm the really... Fucking, the fucking, the, the <laughs> Hammond uh, organ player. Yes, yeah, Booker T and the MGs. Booker T yes. and the MGs. Yeah. The most unshakable... Okay, if you just listen to, to Wilson Pickett's 99 and a half, which he's on... The bass drum is tuned to the tonic, so when he does the breakdown, and it's the <laughs> simplest thing in the world, but when he hit, he's so in the pocket, and he and he's just behind the beat, and he hits that kick drum, and it just makes me want to jump out of a fucking window. He's yeah. so good. Anyway, yeah, I understand what you're saying about Darren Jesse. Going back, to, you know, coming back to it, it's like beautiful he, guy. Beautiful but it's guy. like that's the one thing I've also realized is that some people want to play with certain types of people who can. You don't have to be the greatest. You just have to. You got to be able to fit in, and you got to be able to make things better. You don't have to make things any more complicated. You know, sometimes right. the simplest things make things better, and yes. you know, that's that's what it is. So, when did you make the transition? We'll come back to the music stuff in a second. When did you make the transition from music to writing? You know, it's funny. I was still. It's funny, actually. This is a good segue because I, I well, I was writing back when I was playing rock and roll. So I remember writing a couple of essays because I took a ton of creative writing classes in college. And I, I remember writing a couple of essays. This goes back back to uh, for a zine called Trash. This would have been, I don't know, 1990, 1991 or two. One of them was about how much I loved Johnny Ace because mm -hmm. <laughs> I was really into Johnny Ace Records, um, who was a strange sort of R&B crooner guy is it, who... Is that who, where the Johnny Ace Christmas song Absolutely, came from? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And Johnny Ace killed himself backstage on Christmas Eve uh, during a concert uh, in Houston. And I, I, I don't think it was on purpose. I think he was just a dumb kid. 
but he only recorded 22 songs. Mm-hmm. I love him. And I wrote something about that. And then I wrote something about how much I loved uh, the Bill Shatner uh, cop show, TJ Hooker, uh, <laughs> and just how much I loved that. And then in the zippers, I did a feature for, it might have been Alternative Press, on Ben Folds 5. Mm. Uh, funny. And they came over to my house and we were pals and we talked about, I guess it would have been the record, their last record, the unauthorized biography of Ryan Which Old you Messing, played on. Which I'm on, yeah. And f- this is, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I misspelled Darren's name. <laughs> I misspelled Darren's name, which is D-A-R-R-E-N. And I misspelled it. And he was super cool. And I was, was and am, to this day, fucking mortified because you just don't do that. And I did. And so, yeah. And then I guess it started back up again. Oh, hell, I don't know. I wrote, I mean, I wrote some stuff. I guess I started writing that book that you read. And what it was really about was it was not just about my experience in school and zippers. It was also about my experience shepherding my son through his treatment for leukemia. Yeah. But all that part got axed because my agent told me well what he was told which is that um illness memoirs don't sell (laughs) (laughs) and so and then i got hooked up with al jazeera america and i think one of the first things i did was lou reed's um a memorial obituary for lou reed and i spent and they they wanted me to turn that thing around in like four hours and I spent two hours wondering what what fucking right I had to say anything <laughs> about Lou Reed, you know. Yeah. But it, I was really affected by his death, and so I wrote something, and they liked it. Yeah. So I kept and so, doing it. and so you know, you you've kept the music uh, going intermittently in that time, right? I mean, the Minor Drag was in 2014. And yeah, you had, you, up until you, a couple of years ago, where I stopped. I don't think I've performed since 2019, okay. which I don't know is a great idea. But it's but music is still a daily thing. Yeah, you consuming it, writing about it. I'm hosting a podcast for Audible now with my partner Brooklyn. Oh, nice! I'll have to check um, that out. Which is well, it's not out yet, but you will whenever it comes out. The first season's about to be delivered, I guess, and it's called Shelved. It's about records that were shelved. So hmm. we we in the first season we talk about the Jeff Buckley record, okay. his second record. We talk about the Yoko Ono record that she made during their, her separation from John Lennon. Mm. Uh, we talk about the MC Hammer album that was supposed to be his comeback uh, when he was on Death Row Records that was produced by Tupac Shakur. Mm. And we'll talk to people who were on these recordings or who were a part of the process of these recordings being made. No, or like that- or the Velvet Underground record, the Lost Fourth record. I talk, yeah. We talked to the guy who found those tapes when he was when he was working for uh, whatever label that was at the time, found those tapes and actually put that stuff out in 1984. He talked about the process of remixing those songs and having to put up 12-track, one-inch tape on a two-inch, 24-track machine and had to use, <laughs> like, broom handles and pencils and shit. It was great.
in general, obviously, music is a huge part of your life, oh, and yeah. you're you're an incredibly talented musician. That's one thing. Oh, that's you nice. know, I mean, like I was going back, and I think I'm a know, hack. I'll be well, honest with I mean, you. The only, thing, can, the only you, thing I think I ever did well was play rhythm guitar, literally. And then I could tell you like where I wasn't that great. But you know, I. But how did you? But like you. But you. You know, it was interesting because when I was talking to Django, he didn't know you played saxophone. And so like, <laughs> you, but you play it. You play woodwinds. You play guitar. You can play yeah. drums. You can play piano. How did you pick up all that? And like, what you know? When did you start playing music? And what was your first instrument? Um, sixth grade, maybe. Um, I wanted drum. I wanted to play drums. My mm -hmm. parents said no for good reason. And then for whatever other reason, I saw a picture of an alto saxophone in the brochure that like the the um, music teacher came by and, and showed us pictures. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that, you know. And so I learned alto. I think the first thing I ever learned was alto sax. And then in the meantime, I just bullied my way into getting a drum kit <laughs> and taught myself um how to play drums which is to say i would put on headphones and put on my favorite records of the people who i could emulate mm -hmm. and i a, a big shout out to doug clifford from ccr mm -hmm. uh who you can play drums along with you know yeah al jackson um and then you know some ringo and kenny jones and people like that and and i would hold pencils or play along and and sort of uh, there were things i couldn't figure out, you know, because I never took a lesson in my life, mm. you know. Um, by the time I was in college, I got a guitar. It was easier. You know, I marched a year on alto saxophone at, when I went to Carolina to get out of a math class. <laughs> but there wasn't any point. You know, the other thing that's interesting is that Eric Bachman from Marchers of Loaf was a saxophone performance major. He was an alto sax mm. performance major. So, you know, and and you may not know this. He made a solo record, a couple of solo records called Barry Black. I don't know why he called him that. <laughs> and on the first one, which came out, um, let's say, 95, Ben Folds plays drums on it. Ben Folds, oh, yeah. by the way, who's a phenomenal drummer. Oh, yeah. He, he was a percussion major in college. Yeah, and maybe a better bass player. Uh, it's just yeah. ridiculous. Um Ridiculously talented guy. So then my friend taught me how to play bar chords, you know. Yeah. And I started, you know, and it was like, I, I, you know, he taught me how to play Driver 8 by R.E.M. Because that was <laughs> that was what one needed to know how yeah. to do. Um, so at that point, I was well on my way to becoming the jack of jack of all trades. Yeah. But mostly, you know, it's just how do I what do I what, what do I use to write a song? Because I was never, ever, ever going to be known as Mr. Chops. And it's the same mm. thing that Jody Stevens from Big Star told me when we crashed Ardent Studios back in the day. And I asked him functionally the same questions. And he just said, look, I, I knew I was never going to be technically that great. I just wanted to be rec recognizable. Yeah. And I'm That's like, it. yeah, good job. You're fucking awesome. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah. Um, how influential were your parents? I mean, obviously they told you not to play drums, but were they into music? You know, they, I were, mean they were influential in their tolerance. And my mom is my my dad would like my dad was interested in classical music had not no nothing for it was years and years later, years later and like say, the year after my mom died hmm. in 2013 or my dad comes down to visit because I'm like I'll do Christmas this year you know and he comes hmm. down he mentions offhandedly that he saw 
Miles Davis perform <laughs> in in Detroit with with Bill Evans and the band that did Kind of Blue, and I'm like, what the fuck? Are you fuck? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, they were good. I'm like, what? Who are you, man? What the fuck? Now my mom would like really super get off on Debbie Boone records and shit, and like her enthusiasm. She told me a story about seeing Louis Armstrong emerge from an elevator in South Florida hmm. and having to restrain herself from hugging him. And like, that's how much she loved him. And I'm like, no, I get it. You know, yeah. I, I completely understand. And then they let me have a drum kit in a house like where I shared a bedroom with both my older brothers. I mean, that just that <laughs> and, and make a horrible horrible unending racket an undisciplined racket so yeah. very influential the thing that was very influential as well was we had a neighbor i grew up in the mountains of north carolina we had a neighbor who was quite old <laughs> named rice fitzpatrick and one day rice says to me oh i see you're playing saxophone and i'm like yeah you know he goes you know i used to be in a jazz band when i was in college now this would have been the 20s and I was like, cool, I get whatever. And he goes, I'm going to give you my cheat book. So he gave me his fake book, which if, oh, nice. for, for your, if your listeners don't know, it's a, it's a, it has popular songs from the day, chord changes, yeah, mel lead melody and lyrics. So you can just show up and play a song, you know? Um, and when I wanted to figure out how to write, songs like I was hearing from Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington, Fats Waller, Django Reinhardt. That's the book that taught me how to do it. That's the book that showed me either the song that I wanted to learn how to write or just what generally how one structures these things, what passing chords are, all this crazy shit. Where that was, I, because I, when I got it, I was like, I don't care or know what this is. My parents were like, this is, this is a big deal. Mm put it away somewhere safe. And so I did. And then in 19, whatever, 88, I went back home and was like, where the fuck is that? Where is that? And there it was. And I'm like, golly, this is a hell of a gift. By that time, rice was long gone. Obviously the squirrel nut zippers and music and even your solo music is very, you know, like you, you said, informed by that, the, that 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, yeah. hot jazz yeah, scene. Big time. Yeah. How did you get into that? You know, I mean, I'm assuming you were growing up in the 70s, 80s. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there, there it is on Warner Brothers cartoons. For yeah. One thing. There it is. There it is in um, Fleischer cartoons, Betty Boop cartoons. There it is. You know, I mean, you could, yeah. there's there's Armstrong in a Betty Boop cartoon. There's Calloway, the amazing Cab Calloway um, doing um, St. James Infirmary mm. as a ghost, as an animated rotoscope ghost. Fuck me. It's a ridiculously cool but i remember coming home from a rehearsal where i was a rock and roll drummer in 1988 and turning on the tv and they showed a clip of callaway performing Minnie the moocher some music video my guess would have been 32 33 early he's mm -hmm. young white tails wide smile paper mache lightning bolts behind him and i was like god almighty you know um, you can 
play this music and be aggressive. You can play this music and be nuanced. There's a menace to it that doesn't really exist in rock and roll. Um, and I just, it, I was, it was like I had become magnetized. And then like you were talking about with prog drummers or however you, however you put it, one leads to the, oh, and then I started, and then I listened to this guy. Well, if you start listening to Cab Calloway, you're going to find Fats Waller. You're going to find Duke Ellington. You're going to find Teddy Wilson. You're going to find all these dudes. Mm -hmm. For me, particularly Harlem from, say, 1926 to 19, whatever, 40 something. um, It was everything I could have ever wanted. (laughs) And then you go, for me, it's like, okay. The trumpet player in Duke Ellington's Cotton Club Band, Bubber Miley, who died young, he used a plunger mute and he used a growl. Uh, he growled. And I'm not a trumpet player, so I'm not quite sure how he did it with it, either with his embouchure or with his throat. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. When you listen to that, what do you have? You have wah-wah and distortion in 1926 on songs like um, East St. Louis Toodaloo or The Mooch. And mm-hmm. if you don't have Bubber Miley you don't have Jimi Hendrix. Right. Just straight up. And then, of course, Charlie Christian, who is, who is in um, one of the greatest bands of all time, which was Benny Goodman's Sextet, playing an amplified Gibson in 1940-whatever, 39-40, and basically inventing that form. Anyway, it sounds like I'm trying to justify it. That no. shit just set my soul on fire. It really yeah. did. It set me on fire. And then... Again, coming home from a practice and hearing a, a pre-war Calypso song and just being just being given new raiment. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, I'm just new now. I'm a new person. <laughs> so, so you know, as a teen, you were playing pretty much rock and roll. I mean, you mentioned oh, yeah. you marched. Were you in jazz band and stuff like that? Oh, in, hell in no. School? No, oh, my okay. God, no. No. There wasn't one mm. in my school in the mountains. I don't think I would have had the balls to try out for it. I always had, if believe it or not, stage fright. Hmm. I'd seize up during all state band um, <laughs> tryouts, you know, just yeah. really seize up and run out of breath. And th- so alto saxophone was just, I, it was n- nothing to do with jazz or rock. And then drums were, um, you know, rock and roll. And then yeah. I was in rock bands before I graduated from UNC because I lived in Chapel Hill. Yeah. And they're just, Everyone, you know, we had the great predecessors already with Let's Active and the DBs or bands like Arrogance or Flat Duo Jets with Dexter Romweber, where it's like, we were given permission. You can do this. Go do it. Now, you do your thing. Make your own sound. And by the time I was rolling into it in 86, 87, there started to become a lot, a lot, a lot of bands. And by the early 90s, there was a ton of bands most of which were fantastic, none of which resembled each other in the way they sounded. And and to me, it was paradise. So you mentioned that you went to UNC and we're in the, we're in the Chapel Hill scene, and obviously you're going to be writing about it in this book. Um, yeah. What was the scene like in you know when you were there in college? And obviously you didn't really leave, and so you stayed there. Yeah, that's right. Um, so in the late 80s, early 90s, what was that Chapel Hill scene like? Ideal. I mean, I found myself, I took it for granted at the time. In fact, I thought that all college towns were 
or like that. I was not. I was wrong. So think about it like this. In the middle of the state of North Carolina, you had Chapel Hill with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. where I went to school. 20 miles up the road, you have Durham with Duke University. And then in the other part of what they call the triangle, you have Raleigh with North Carolina State University and mm-hmm. many other colleges and universities sprinkled throughout. So what you have are very large youth factories cranking out educated, intelligent, curious, horny young people. <laughs> and then with Chapel Hill, you had what they call third places. That is to say, like places like the Hardback Cafe where you could go and chill out and like or or whatever bars, places where you could go and talk and commune and get your mind opened up with professors. You had the Cat's Cradle, which at the time was being run by Frank Heath, which had established itself thanks to people like R.E.M. and, and bands that were coming through as an anchor for touring acts to come and play in between whatever, Atlanta and mm-hmm. D.C., going up the eastern seaboard because Frank is uh, a music fan and he's honest and he doesn't have, you know, uh, uh, an alcohol or cocaine problem. Mm-hmm. So he's just very reliable. And then you had a relatively cheap, affordable place to live. You could work in a restaurant and afford to pay rent. And many, many other venues of expression that is to say, college radio stations who would play your yep. stuff, have you come up and talk to them, local uh, independent weekly uh, arts magazines, uh, zines that people were just making. And you had a, just a the greatest possible kind of cross-fertilization. And back then, <laughs> and all kids, you know, get off my lawn. We consumed music publicly for the most part. You might like you buy a record and take it home and listen to it on headphones, or you might make a mixtape for someone you wanted to have sexy times with. But for the most part, you went to clubs because it was cheaper to see them play live than to buy a record that you weren't sure you would like. You would see all of your friends there. You would see how they reacted to it. And it was a social, it was primarily a social event. And in Chapel Hill, particularly... There was a committed support of local music, not just among the musicians, but by the entire community. And people would come out and see you. They would forgive mistakes. They would be enthusiastic. They would just be as supportive. And so you could do the thing you wanted to do, even if you were occasionally face planting. It was okay. It was the greatest Petri dish of all time. You cannot underestimate what that community does in terms of the creative process or the fact that it does essentially create create its own art yeah. as a collective. And um, I consider myself very, very fortunate indeed to have been, to have had access to that. I really, really do. Yeah. And other people have before and will again. Uh, one of the things the book does is basically identify the elements of such a thing was something that Brian Eno called seniors. Um, and because it is, it will come back. It just is, is reliant on a few things. One of which is affordability. Mm-hmm. And now Chapel Hill 
has become functionally like so many other places um, a gated community. Yeah, a kind, a kind of amusement there. park. You know, you can't yeah. you can't afford it, and you it certainly won't have anything like what I enjoyed thirty five years ago. Again, yeah. and and but that doesn't mean it's not going to show up somewhere else. Right. Yeah. With a, such a vibrant scene. How did a, such a unique band like Squirrel Nut Zippers form? And how did that come out of, you know, what is known primarily as a, a, a kind of an alt-rock scene? Yeah, especially at that time. Um, it did because, like, it just it had to. <laughs> so <laughs> Jimbo Mathis was, in, was a drummer in a band called Metal Flake Mother who were really voted, you know, the ones who are going to succeed. Mm -hmm. They broke up before their first record came out. And it's an amazing record. It's called Beyond the Java Sea. Jimbo's a great drummer, even though he never played drums, but he's just, he's one of those people, yeah. you know. Um, and that band, and I was in that band for a minute uh, mm -hmm. when their guitar player left and Jimbo went to play guitar and they recruited me because we'd been gigging together, our two bands and then they just they went away but by that time Jimbo and I were hanging out with with his girlfriend Catherine and with my girlfriend mm -hmm. and we were listening to Fast Waller records and just going like you know we really hit it off you know he really liked um Charlie Patton you know I really liked Skip James there's just a with just so much more to talk about and in the meantime the the indie rock thing, the sort of cargo shorts, you know, mm -hmm. music was ascendant. And we knew and liked those guys, but we weren't going to be playing that music. And we just felt like there was so much more. And so that Squirrel and Zippers formed in spring of 93. When the cradle was closed, the cradle was in the process of moving from Chapel mm -hmm. Hill to Carborough. So there's nothing doing. And there was no place you couldn't get a decent gig. So they played the bit like a little basement restaurant. Um and everybody flipped and i think it's because what was appreciated or encouraged in that environment was not a clone of whatever else was happening it was the thing that was fresh and original and had fire and heart um because that band certainly in the early days and myself very much included, had way more enthusiasm than Chops. We had really had no business playing that kind of music. It was like DIY. What did one of the guys from Manhattan transfer was like, oh, um, jazz punk or something. He's, and I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. It's just we wouldn't have done it without getting just feeling like you could you could do it. Yeah. No one else was going to do it. It wasn't until I went down to New Orleans that I saw that there was an entire community of horn players who had a history. Like, there, nobody yeah. was playing horn. I The reason I played saxophone is because there was no other fucking person or, <laughs> or clarinet. I played clarinet very badly because there was no one else who was going to play clarinet. I was like, well, you know, if you want to hear the sound, you have to make the sound. It's a very <laughs> DIY thing. Yeah. And so that was, I joined in January of 94 and we already had our, had the wind very firmly at our back. Now, not really gigging much, certainly mm -hmm. not touring at all. Um, 
but that band was always just blessed. People, it was always just incredibly well received. And when we would go into a town we'd never been before, it'd be the same thing. Yeah. It was it was crazy. It was so, crazy. So you were not you were you there at the beginning, or did Jimbo and Catherine Jimbo? Kind of form the band? No, I wasn't there. I I was still my band was in the in its death throes. I remember Jimbo saying, "I'm going to form a jazz band." I was so jealous, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't go like, "Well, yeah, I'm going to be in that band too." I was just like waiting to be invited. <laughs> um, and it, so it was Ken Mosier and Don Raleigh on bass, Chris Phillips, Ken Ken Mosier, who's a phenomenal guitar player, was playing drums See, really I badly. I didn't I didn't know he played guitar until I watched a live oh, uh, geez, live uh, video mon- recently. Oh, he's a monster. I just knew him as a, as a saxophone. Right, player, so, right, yeah. yeah. And the only yeah. reason he played saxophone is because it was just, he was like, well, I did it in middle school, <laughs> and I was like, well, fuck fuck me if Ken can do it, I can do. It. I and so I, I and I was like, well, I want to play baritone, you know. Because I really like that horn. Yeah. Who who else is going to do it? No one's going to do it. But Ken started as a drummer, which is mm. funny. All three um, of you started as, as everybody's as a drummer yeah. in that. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> a drummer. And so they they did their thing for a minute or two, and then asked me to join in January. And 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 I'm the one who was like, well, I was I was trying to form a band called the Minor Dragon. It was going to have horns in it. The Zippers mm. did not have horns. If you want. An example of that sound, they released a single on Merge Records um, that was recorded like a month before I joined um, that's got good stuff on there, songs like You Are My Radio and stuff like that. And and um, that's what they sounded like before I showed up. But I was playing with the, trump, with the trumpet player, Stacey Guess. Yeah. And I, and, and I was like, if I come in, I want to bring Stacey in and, and have it be more like that. And that's what happened. Gotcha. And so... When did you got like obviously you you were you were getting through the Chapel Hill scene and did you start touring just regionally yes. um and yeah. like and then how Very did you get Very sporadically cuz Catherine was determined not to perform at all Really didn't want to terrible stage fright amazing voice the the only reason she ever performed is because she was convinced that no it's just an art project don't worry about it <laughs> Ken Ken told me it was like he wasn't afraid the first show because it wasn't a real band. It was them pretending to be a band. <laughs> He's like, so we're just playing. We're just pretending to be a band that we want to be. But it wasn't didn't have anything to do with him, actually. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes any sense. Well, um, and, me- and so we would play very sporadically and be rapturously received. But everyone else, everyone else had a higher levels of ambition comparatively than Catherine and compared to each other as well. So at some point it was just like, fuck it, make a go. And then Merge Records wanted to sign us and Mammoth Records wanted to sign us. And we signed in, I guess that summer of 94 and made our first record. So that's, that was a quick turnaround. That's like, Oh God, yeah, no, it's ridiculous. So I mean, like, how does that even happen? Like, I mean, granted the music industry has changed, but like, how did you even, how did they get wind of it? Well, they all lived in that, they're all in that town. Oh, okay, you're right. I didn't. I didn't know Mammoth was actually Mammoth the, was, was based. There. Yeah, Mammoth had moved to Carborough from Raleigh, and they started in '89, basically, okay. and moved to Carborough in '90. So I knew all those guys. The vice president, Steve Balcom, was oh, wow. the program okay. director at WXYC. So I knew him because I had a show on XYC. I mean, you know, yeah, you saw all these people. I worked with 
their art director, Lane Worcester, at Crook's Corner, where I was tending bar, <laughs> and Lane was front of house. It's just, dude, it's yeah. not a big town. Yeah. And so they all, we all knew each other, and the zippers were touched with I, I can't explain because when I listen to this stuff I'm like oh yeah you can I talked to Ken about our first record he's like there's nothing in tune on that whole record <laughs> nothing is in tune on the whole record and it's amazing he goes if that band that made that record p- performed with the Velvet Underground it'd be the greatest gig of all time <laughs> and I'm like yeah it would I'd love that um we were it's you know if you're really lucky the things that are apparent liabilities become assets musically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm not, you know, because like none of us are trained. None of us are showboats. None of us ha- are, are going to ever, fi- well, Jimbo got a lot better, but like we're never going to be Django Reinhardt type people. Never mm-hmm. going to be that kind of, have that kind of mastery. But I do think that what we did have apart from, like I said, enthusiasm, was a global perspective on the song. We were always thinking about what was in the best service of the song and making Mm. really, really interesting arrangements with fairly limited means. However, look, dude, I love Johnny Ace. I love Howlin' Wolf. I love people who are limited. I love people who don't sound... I love Sid Barrett, who may not be the greatest singer of all time, but he has a vulnerability that you can't fake. So whatever, it did. It came together very quickly... And we, like I said, we recorded our first record, The Inevitable, in October. I don't yeah. know, five days or something, whatever. Right. Something and, like that. And just to say, like, in terms of, uh, you know, you're saying unique sound in terms of drummers before, right? Yeah. You and Ken have a very unique horn sound. It's <laughs> kind of, it, it, it's like when you hear, like, for me, because it, you guys were so important to me. As a as a kid, when I hear that horn sound, I know exactly who I'm listening. Oh, it's to. Ken, Ken. Yeah, Ken is is so identifiable as an alto player. I sounded like shit on the tenor and ended up playing tenor. I sounded like shit on the clarinet and would, would not even perform with it. I think I was a okay punchy Barry sax player. I love Barry sax and I and I like playing alto. I don't remember ever actually playing alto saxophone in Squirrelnut Zippers because Ken had it locked. Right. I appreciate what you're saying. Um, if you listen to Cab Calloway's version of St. James Infirmary from 1931, I'm going to say, maybe 1930. I don't remember this guy's name, but there's a baritone sax solo on there that absolutely fucking slaps. <laughs> and it might as well be punk rock. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's not that song. There's another song which I can't think of which I believe has the first recorded scream uh, in a musical setting. Yeah, I I wrote an essay called um, A History of Musical Screaming, where I tried to (laughs) identify the first song that had an actual scream in it, which would have been uh, Archie Brownlee in The Five Blind Boys of Alabama, Mm -hmm. their version of uh, Lord's Prayer from 1951. But actually, if you go back to 1930... Cab Calloway makes a noise. It's pretty much a scream right before a solo. Fucking amazing. Anyway, yeah, I'm babbling at this point. I found a new baby. I found a new girl. My flashlight baby got me in a world, world, world. New kind of loving. Done made me her slave. Sweet turtle dolphins, all that I crave. Oh, sweet just mixed with a kiss full of bliss. 
twice. Sonic eyes mesmerize. <laughs> you know I don't. You guys got signed to 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 Mammoth. You yeah. did the inevitable. Yeah. Now, when you were recording Hot, the yeah. second album, the one that that blew up. Yeah. Was it was the was the swing revival already kind of going on, or were you did did everything just kind of time itself out like uh, you know coincidentally because you know you were yeah. lumped in with oh yeah you know brian Sensor, big bad voodoo daddy cherry poppin daddies all of that ilk yeah um but you were totally different we didn't know about those guys except i will say we went to the west coast in the summer of 95 it was the first time i'd ever been to the west coast mm-hmm. we played the brown derby for the premiere of swingers and this band filed in into the green room we're all sitting around looking like shit and wearing jeans and they're like we just want to say how important how great you guys and i'm like thanks i don't know who the fuck you guys are i think they were big bad voodoo daddy who played in swingers yeah they yeah that's right yeah, yeah yeah and and then you know then then they play, we played our show and then they played their show and i'm like okay yeah you know before that we were compared to bands like combustible edison Mm-hmm. And and bands that would be like, oh, they've got vibraphones. You know, you're a lounge band. It was like, that's fine. It was like, we like martinis and cigars. I'm like, I don't, I don't. <laughs> but whatever, that's cool. I don't care. And then we go up to play San Francisco. We play Cafe du Nord. And everybody in the room is singing the lyrics to The Inevitable. And I cannot understand why. And at an, <laughs> af- at an after party, this guy comes, uh, is like, I'm starting a magazine called Swing Time, and you don't know, but this is going to be huge. This is going to be the next grunge. And Candy and I are just laughing at him. We're like, Did you, kn- you're, you, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. So, and then we so leave. The, so did the inevitable, how did the inevitable even get such wide? We, we was went, it college radio or was it just? Well, okay. We recorded it in six days in New Orleans because uh, we couldn't afford to, <laughs> to be in Kingsway for longer than that. Mm. And I, I cut the vocals for Hell Halloween night of 1995. And oh, so th- was this for Inevitable or for Hot? This is saying? for Hot. It's for the Hot okay. record. And then gotcha. so the Hot record comes out in, let's say, I don't know, May or something of 96, something like that. And it lives its life, right? And then for whatever, six months, and then we're back in the studio. We're, we're recording Perennial Favorites when... The guys from Mammoth Records are like, we need to have a meeting right away. And we're like, you know, fuck, we're going to get dropped. Um, why would they do that? Why, why are they insisting on coming by the studio? And the reason they were insisting was that the program director at G105, which was a Raleigh FM Top 40 clear channel station, mm. was a fan of the label, uh, played some of their records, including like Seven Mary Three, but also... The, pro, the PD was like, I really like Squirrel and Zippers. I really like this song. Hell, I think I can do something with it. So their ask that that day in the studio was like, will you put off this new record? Will you go play their whatever Christmas show or whatever? And we we're like, he, he, I talked to Steve, Steve Balcom from Mammoth Records recently. He goes, all I remember is just blank stares from you guys. <laughs> it just wasn't conceivable. In fact, when he said, we were like, why, why, what's going on? He goes, you have a hit song. And I said, what does that mean? I couldn't understand what the fuck he was talking about. And then in the meantime, over uh, the mammoth rep on the West Coast had gotten us onto um, the morning show on um, 
K-R-O-Q, which was a monster. Yeah, Yeah, K-Rock. Now, and they played Hell. But we weren't on the playlist. So the program director was furious, but the phones blew up. Who is Is that? What is that? And this is before you had a music video? This is before you Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this is back in the summer of 95 or something. Or whenever we, yeah. And so then they, they were like, around the time that G105 added us to rotation, that these are clear channel stations. There yeah. is no, this is not on the, the playlist, but when K-Rock added it, they felt like dominoes. And the guy that got us on the morning, the Kevin and Bean show, told me that he would get calls from program directors who would say things like, I fucking hate this band. Um, <laughs> but I'm putting them into heavy rotation. <laughs> Because they were a clear channel station. Yeah. And so, and then MTV put it in their buzz bin and it went, it went fucking ridiculous. Yeah. That's how I, I mean, I I learned about you guys through, through MTV. Yeah. 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 You know, but we're, I mean, so you made the video after you were getting the radio play. Yeah. So let's say the, the mammoth guys come to the studio and say November, maybe December of 96 when we're recording perennial favorites Mm. then we leave and go play a gig we had already booked which was president clinton's second inaugural ball oh wow yeah 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 wow yeah yeah we played with uh usher and just (laughs) crazy cheryl crow and jewel Wow. Fucking Kenny G was there. We had a brief band meeting about who was going to beat him to death with his soprano <laughs> saxophone. We would never. We'd How'd you never. guys get on that? Oh, fuck. I, again, the buzz was ridiculous. We were the greatest at that point. As far as I was concerned, even though we were basically about to break up, we had the greatest. It was as good as it was ever going to get. We had mm. sold... 60,000 copies of the hot record. Mm. Um, we had done great at college radio. This we is, had, we'd played the Summer amazing. Olympics, right? Yeah. Yeah, we'd played the Summer of Olympics. We'd been on Conan. We'd done NPR, Morning Edition. Forget it. It was perfect. And, you know, I mean, the, that record, that record sold the same as the Super Chunk record, which I can't remember the name of from around that time. 60,000 mm. copies. Come on. That's insane. For an indie band? I mean, that we sounds only, we like only you spent, guys did. Yeah, we only <laughs> spent like $12,000 on the fucking record. So that was great. And then when it, you know, and then when it gets to the point where it's shifting 30,000 a week is when things actually started to suck. You know, in many ways. In some yeah. ways, it's like, okay, you know, the 14-year-old me gets to eat all the ice cream. Yeah. Um, but uh, at, with the swing thing, especially, I was like, oh, fuck, we're done. The thing that I really loved was like, I remember one time we played a radio festival uh, and Kenny and I were walking around, you know, there's an outdoor radio festival mm. on the West Coast. And this woman comes up who's maybe my age now, like a, an elderly person in her yeah. 50s or something. She's like, are you in scrolling at zippers? And I'm like, yeah, I really love your band. And I'm like, see, this is great because we'll get like 12 year old kids who will come to these shows and then people like that. And then she said, and my mom does, too. And she pointed behind her and there's like a 95 year old woman who's like i love your bad it's like this just doesn't get better we yeah. don't have to ever stop there is no sell-by date we can just keep going 
because whoever, whatever poet said, nothing ages, ages faster than the modern, you know? And so you could have a career. Imagine having a shot at a career where you just keep chugging yeah. and you shift dozens of thousands of units and then you make another record and you just keep going. You've got a great touring base. How, how can this be improved upon? And the swing thing was like, because I saw what they did with grunge. You know, I saw where it was like, oh, no, it's a fashion, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. it's a, you, know, you have to wear these clothes and you have to look a certain way. And boy, they will get that. They will shove that off the stage as quick as they can, which is what they did. Yeah. And then yeah, with the bit. swing thing, it was even more cynical and even, it had an b- even briefer sort of thing. And I was like, fuck, it's a boat anchor. We're going down. And, and you know, really what happened was that the band was breaking up mm. and that we could have survived it if we had been able to, but we were never going to be able to. But the thing mostly was just, I just made too much. I complained too loudly about something I had no control over and should have just been way the fuck more chill considering how much weed I smoked. I had no chill at all. This was, you're talking about the, because I I mean, I was going to ask, like, you know, the, with the the record deal, I guess, was was this when Hollywood Records, Disney basically bought Mammoth? Yeah, bought it. Yeah, Yeah, bought it. Yeah. Yeah, and then they're like, Disney buy or yeah, Disney buys Mammoth Records for twenty six million dollars. Expects to recoup from Squirrel Nut Zippers, and I'm like, fuck me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think there are people who would go like, this is the greatest thing. What what an opportunity! But in my mind, Disney was the was a kind of a zombified. It was a thing that killed things. Right. You know, the Disney version. And I was like, shit, they're going to turn us into the Disney version of Squirrel Nut Zippers. And they're going to defang us. And anything that is all interesting or dangerous is going to get sort of uh, sanded smooth, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think they had a chance. They had no idea what to do with us. Had no yeah. fucking idea. serious drive now you make the scene all day but tomorrow they'll be held to pay i guess to go to go back because like uh you know with with hot was one of my favorite records growing up perennial favorites absolutely loved um i yeah. honestly did not i'm jewish so i didn't buy the christmas record stupid like i was like i don't want i hate that we called it we were going to call it holiday caravan but it yeah. was so lame but just holidays so lame. But I wish to God we. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I, I finally listened to it. It's great. I mean, it's. I mean, yeah. I think. I think the title "Indian Giver" may not may, may not have been. You no, know, it may sucks. Not be actually, right now, but, but I I, so. I didn't like it back then. The label, by the way, was very very disappointed. So check this out, right? So hot record breaks. Perennial favorites yeah. is done and in the can in January of '97. Perennial favorites doesn't get released until August of '98. So it's. Already Eight, at the tail end of the, the swing stuff. 18 months later, they just wouldn't release it. We didn't release anything in 97. We're losing our minds. So then they're like, we'll do do a Christmas record and we'll indemnify you because the Squirrel Brand Company is suing you. And <laughs> oh, me right. and Jimbo were like, fuck it. We just started furiously writing songs because we never had written a new song hmm. since 1996. And then they were bummed that we just didn't shit out a bunch of um, standards. Yeah. Which well, who it, who wants that? I mean, you did sleigh ride, which is a, we know, did sleigh ride as a concession. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, you know, and that record isn't isn't really a, a true. 
doesn't sound like the other two. And now that I <laughs> now that no, but 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 it makes sense because you're saying that perennial favorites was was recorded literally months after hot was recorded so you were already in that phase so yeah. that's why those two records sound very all the first three sound very similar and yeah. it was almost like the you you hear a lot of rockabilly in that in that christmas uh, um mm-hmm. yeah. uh, album some doo-wop and stuff like that and yeah. it's it's and definitely some, like, like some yeah. like string band music like i think yeah. jimbo sat on the stairs at kingsway with a mandolin and it was good yeah. well that record was recorded in sullen little clutches because the click had set in mm. there the the um seven musketeers thing was long gone so I'm over here doing, it's like sort of like, I'm, the only way it can be compared to the White Album is that everybody was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but people really like it. It's weird. I have very painful memories of it. I don't really listen to it because I'm like, oh God, it makes me feel bad. Like it, Like when we were cutting it, but then people every year go, oh, I love this song. I, I personally think, and who cares what I think, but um, My Evergreen is one of the best songs I ever wrote. Mm. Um, I just it came out great. I really worked on it, you know? Mm. And uh, people love Carolina Christmas. It's I'm, it's gratifying. I, yeah. It's gratifying. Summer smiles but passes on Autumn sings a lonely song The robin waits for spring but what will waiting bring? Winter spreads a blanket down White and flawless on the ground The flowers can't be seen But you're my evergreen But I understand, like, it's hard when you think you put out something that's crap and it's hard for you to kind of get over it because you sure, have such a connection crap, to but it. it's it's well no, but, but, but it's, you, spotty. But like dis- it's spotty disappointing i should say yeah like it's something when you when you feel like you didn't put do the best and then other it's it's kind of a weird dichotomy of like for your brain to like process all this gratitude when you're like this is not my best work and you know here's the thing kind of i always used to go out and talk to people after shows well, for one thing, that record, okay, so Perennial Favorites is held up for a year and a half. It's released yeah. in August, and then they shove the Christmas record out in November. Right it just doesn't yeah. make any fucking sense. Yeah. I used to go out and talk to people after shows because it would it was a way of making it real. Like, oh, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? Because otherwise you're in a hotel, you don't know where the mm. fuck you are. But if you go outside and talk to people after a show, for one thing, pretty much everyone is great. They're lovely, and they say really sweet things. Um... And so when I first started doing it, all they want to do is come up and say, I really like your band or my dad was in the hospital and your music did the thing and it was really great. And it just, that's it. That's all they want to say. And when they first started doing it, when I first started talking to people, they come up and go like, that was an amazing show. And I would start telling them why it wasn't (laughs) like an asshole. Oh no, no, I was really bad. And then they would just look crestfallen. And at some point I was like, dumbass. It doesn't matter what you think. In fact, your opinion means less than their opinion. They probably have more objectivity than you do, and it doesn't matter. This is a special thing to them. Yeah. So I can talk all day about how the Christmas record is yeah. spotty. Yeah. It doesn't belong to me anymore. The minute yeah. the thing is out in the world, 
It doesn't belong to you. You have no control over it. It is what it is. It's like a little, like a little kid yeah. walking around. And the worst parents, he said, segueing, are the ones who try to live vicariously through their kids, right? Instead yes. of just letting them be whoever it is that they are. So yes. um, I think there's some good shit on that record. Yeah. It's just, I, it's better that you weren't in the studio when it was being made, you know. <laughs> Yeah, because oh, then you can form your own attachments. Right. Yeah. So, was because you said the band was breaking up by the time that all this stuff was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Was the because you know I was kind of going back reading it and trying to you know remember what happened with when you and Ken left the group. Yeah. Um, so was Disney buying Mammoth kind of like the nail in the coffin, or was it more of like that's when the fracturing really started to happen? No. No. I'll be honest with you. We were. Perennial Favorites was going to be our last record. Hmm. And then because Hot <clears throat> broke, we were held together by duct tape. Okay. And just pushed out. Now, when I say hours, I mean the collective hours. Because I was the sort of socialist egalitarian, hmm. and Jimbo and Catherine were not. And uh, by the time I left, before Ken left, Ken was like, well, by that point, I was just a side man anyway. But I always yeah. believed that the whole was greater than the sum of its parts and that everyone was as important as the next person. Um, but that's not how the direction it was going. It was going in very much of another direction. So right. Disney, the Disney thing sucked, but that's not really what did it. I didn't leave because I was unhappy about the Disney thing. I was I left because I really wasn't welcome anymore, and I was overwhelmed. Lawsuits upon lawsuits. Our yeah. former manager was suing us because we didn't fire him correctly. This is just the thing that happened. Squirrel Brand Company was suing us. The Disney thing was weird, um, and there was there was no band to come home to. There mm. was no refuge. There was no like inside it's cool outside it's a maelstrom it's like i always knew that there'd be sharks in the water what i didn't know was that in the lifeboat we'd be beating each other with the oars like i i didn't yeah. i just couldn't do it anymore you know yeah and um so in that sense it was an easy decision but i was scared to death to so, leave. so so i mean Catherine and jimbo at the time were married so that's you know yeah. that was a, yeah that was and a, you know and, a power dynamic yeah, and then was were the rest of the guys like Chris and Stu and and um, and and Jay? Jay, were they... and, Jay and Stu were basically Jimbo's sidemen who came on once Don Raleigh quit and Stacy was fired. Well, um, and did so, Stacy? So to just get, did Stacy pass away? He so he didn't pass away when he was in the band. He passed no, away. Yes, he passed then, away. So Stacy was started using again in ninety um, five. So by uh, I it was. Two weeks before we went and did the hot record, uh, he missed. He started missing shows, mm. and we were and we were like, I don't know that we ever actually fired him. It was just like, dude, get your shit together and come back, but don't do yeah. this. And he left and and got his shit together and went back to school and did all kinds of shit. Wrote some amazing papers on Nietzsche and shit, and then died. Yeah. <laughs> died in um, March of 98 when we were doing our first European tour. And that was oh, wow. just like a frying pan to the head. Yeah. Um, I'm sure yeah. with the band already being the way it was at the time. It was oh God, it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, we couldn't even grieve together. Yeah. It sucks. But yeah. so, 
So, okay, so that's so basically, because that's one thing I wanted to ask, and I don't want to, I have so many other questions, so I don't want to sure, dive yeah. into it, but like, AMA. I, I, I've, I've always been curious about the, the idea of when a band gets signed to a record, the, whoever's in the band at the time is like an entity, right? You're the business. So yeah. were you were you a, a, a technically an equity partner yes. of, of the band? And well, so we signed a partnership agreement early on. Um, and this is what I thought was the antidote to the sort of the um, the Jim and Catherine monolith, because mm -hmm. in the partnership agreement, we said uh, we vote on big decisions and we split up publishing money. Now, at the time, and we'd already signed a fucking co-pub agreement with Mammoth. Mm -hmm. It was dumb. But I thought, OK, this is like putting your money where your mouth is. We're all in this together. No one's going to write a hit. It doesn't make doesn't whatever. But still, it's this idea that we are an egalitarian, self-directed unit. Um, that's not how it turned out. Uh, Jimbo tried to fire Chris Phillips several times and Kenny and I were like, no, you realize you can't do that. And then he became their manager, didn't he? <laughs> Something yeah. like that. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And other horrible things, uh, after we left. Um, so yes, but, okay. uh, and then that led to its own problems, the partnership agreement, but what it did do, it also gave Jim and Catherine the name. Yeah. Um, and the name was the brand. Right. Um, and so at some point, you know, people are like, well, you're the, excuse me, you're the ones I need to, you know. Right. Yeah, I, I get you saying. Yeah, so I was just curious because like, you know, obviously it's just, it's just one of these things that I've always been wondering about is like when guys leave, you know, when you hire someone on, do they become part of the, you know, partners or they become just hired? Depends, right? Hands. Depends right, on whether right. or not you're Ronnie Wood in the Rolling right. Stones. Yeah. Who right. did not become a partner, who was yeah. always a fucking sideman, uh, I guess still is, right? So yeah. there's there's inside and there's outside. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think I don't know what happened after after I left, but the partnership agreement functionally became gotcha. me meaningless, yeah. All the birds up in the trees have got a different song to sing. And it's better now they've learned that swing They've been palin' with that Down below at the candy shop They're still working at the same old chore But the stuff is sweeter than it was before You know why, palin' with that By the time that you guys had recorded with Ben Folds 5 Yes, um, and me and Kenny played, Yes, so, because it was, well did Jay play on that too, or was it? Um, he wasn't in the studio with us, so it was. I like, know the Klezmatics were on. Or the two yeah, guys from the Klezmatics God, were on oh my there. God, those guys, fucking monsters! I saw them when I was tripping on acid <laughs> in New Orleans, play above Checkpoint Charlie's, and at one point, the clarinetist put the bell of his horn over the mic, and I was like, "That's <laughs> gonna blow up, right? It's gonna feedback," <laughs> and it didn't. Instead, I was. I became elevated. I I yeah. rose to sit at the right hand of God to judge the quick and the dead. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> when you guys play, so you were recording that the band was pretty much on its way out. And then oh yeah, we were taking our quote unquote six month break, which yeah. we didn't know about. Catherine decided that we were going to take a six month break, and then I got screamed at by Steve Balcom. Why are you killing yeah. perennial favorites? I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think so it's a good idea. You know, I because you know at that time I was a an extremely fanatic Ben Folds Five fan. Um, uh, you guys played with them, I think, on Letterman. You did yes, Army we on did. Letterman. Yes, we and did. Yes, And I saw you uh, play in Central Park in New York City. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. And 
I don't. I just wanted to know. Was that the only show you guys played with them? Because it was. It was. You had that. It was like a six-piece horn section, and then like a four-piece like. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. Section. I don't remember going on tour. Now you have to understand that I was a traumatized fellow at that time. <laughs> I remember that we went to Europe and Japan, and played some shows. And in fact, on Letterman, I'm where I'm wearing a Buddhist prayer that I got in Tokyo and in, 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 <laughs> at an Edo temple that I pinned to my jacket, which basically foretold my future. <laughs> and the other thing that I remember was that I convinced Ben to sing. I thought about your mommy. Yeah. Instead oh, of, so that was about, you. Oh, of course it was me. I didn't. So, so like, of course it was that, me. That's that became, stu- <laughs> that's my, our stupid humor. Because that, that became a thing Because I would sing it all the fucking shows. time. I have to tell you. Okay, here's a story. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story. Where with Ben Folds 5 in London, the suits have taken them out. Their record label has taken them, taken us out to eat. I'm buying very expensive bottles of wine. <laughs> just really so- sticking it to these fucks. So is this so? Is this not with zippers? You are just no, with Ben Folds Five. No, this is just me and Ken on a promotional tour of Europe, supporting the then barely recorded new record. Reinhold Messner, yeah. Reinhold Messner, and Ben says, "You like to smoke pot, don't you, Tom?" And I'm like, "Yes, I do." And he goes, "I don't. I don't really like it. I tried it once, and it, I just it didn't agree with me. You know, I was oh, I was." I was kicking around in the hotel room with Robert and Darren, and I smoked some weed, and I started feeling really bad. So I went back to my hotel room, and I sat on the bed, and I was not doing well. And I looked in the mirror, and in the mirror, I saw an ape. And I realized that I was an ape. And all this stuff about wearing clothes, having a job, doing press junkets it was bullshit it was all bullshit and i basically trashed the room jumped around on i just became an ape i was an ape and the funny thing was when i woke up the next morning i realized that there was no mirror (laughs) and i was like that's the that's one of the greatest stories i've ever heard i don't even know if it's true amazing So, so yeah that's so it was it was madcap. I had yeah. fun. I loved those guys. They came and played the Horde tour, yeah, with us and Neil Young and other bands like Morphine, and that's when we, and they brought out a motherfucking string quartet. God, and so that's when we really started palling around. Yeah, um, but you but you knew them in the, from the scene and stuff like that. Before. Not really, no. Really? I no, I remember Kenny putting on their second record and going like, "You have, you know, just dropping the needle," and me going like, "What fuck, dude? These guys are way, way too good yeah. <laughs> to be local." Yeah. No, they're very serious people. Oh my goodness, yeah. it was really, really good. No, it was the Horde tour, which would have been what some um, summer, summer of ninety-seven, probably. summer of ninety-seven, when we're going crazy and they're on the springboard of going crazy um they i think darren's song um brick was the fourth single from that record and they were doing well and they yeah. were their shows were they were great they were they were, fucking I mean, that, amazing that that central park show i i some i got like I a, no memory someone, of it there's a cassette recording of it it sounds terrible but hmm. the energy at that show it's still one of my favorite shows of all time the energy hmm. from Good. that show between just having the horn section and just Ben going crazy. And yeah. I think they were, tr- 
I, th- I feel like because the, they called it the Central Park Extravaganza. Sure. Because it was, I mean, but that was, it was so great to see you guys play because you didn't just play on Army. You played on a whole bunch of other Sure. You know, other I tunes have no it. fucking memory of it at all. <laughs> I am, I wish we'd gone out. I wish we had gone out and, yeah. and toured. Um, because I never had a bad time. I mean, we ran with Robert and Darren. You know, mm-hmm. Ben Ben was not. I mean, but I never had a, an ounce of any problem with Ben Fault ever. I remember going into the studio in New York and realizing that those motherfuckers had not even written the record. You know, we would we would do this guerrilla shit where we would either record for like five days in, in New Orleans or rent a shitty house in Pittsburgh for 250 bucks a month to do perennial favors so we could have three weeks to make a record, mm. you know. They were spending, they were, it was obscene what they were doing. <laughs> and I was like, Ben was like, well, I work best with a gun to my head. And I'm like, dude, you're fucked on the back end. You're fucked. But it didn't matter, right? Yeah. And I think that the record they made is their best record. Uh, And I think that it was in a weird way analogous to perennial favorites. It's sort of the like Sgt. Pepper. They were like, fuck this. We're not going to do a single. When they had the same downward pressure to produce another single. Right. Their instinct was, Ben's instinct was to to have one song with a midpoint break. The end. (laughs) That's what he was going to do. Yeah. And I'm like, that is a, okay. Fantastic. You know, yeah. I loved I loved to do, I loved making that record, but I ha- my memories are fuzzy. That's okay. Hey, it's I, I it's just me being the the Ben Folds fan. That's so cool more, that you were there. That's so cool, yeah. and I'm glad you liked it. You know, you're, you mentioned that your kids are both grown adults. Were yeah. you, when did when did you you know when was your son born? Um, and you know, my daughter Evelyn was daughter, born sorry. in August of two thousand. So I quit the zippers in June of ninety nine, and then by I remember New Year's Eve not telling our friends that uh, we were pregnant because it was mm. too early. But yeah, it happened very quickly and then when she was two and a half in april of 2003 my son Eston was born named after one of my ancestors mm. and when Eston was three and a half he was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia Ugh. which as it turns out is the good cancer this is not yeah. a term i would have ever used <laughs> But I found out very quickly, uh, being up on the pediatric oncology ward, that he drew a long straw. When I was his age, it was 5% survivable. Mm. It was basically a death sentence. And even at the time for him, which would have been 2006, he was 
it was 95% survivable. And then wow. there's other kids up there who had the other kind of leukemia where they're doing bone marrow transplants and it's 50-50. Yeah. And there are kids who were diagnosed when he was who didn't make it. It was hard. It was really fucking hard. The one thing, though, and it could be that maybe some of your listeners are going through something similar. Um, I don't wish it on. I, what I say about the experience is that I wouldn't wish it on anyone and I wouldn't trade it for the world because it will bring things out in you that you did not know you were capable of. And it will reveal to you a level of compassion and concern in your fellow beings that you have never seen. Yeah. The people who worked up on that ward at UNC were the most committed people I've ever seen. Like fu fucking heroes. And they saved his life. It's going to be hard for me to talk about this without getting okay. weepy. It's okay. But it was it's a okay. it was a two and a half year treatment course. Wow. And so, you know, obviously you were just coming off of this this crazy band. Now you have <laughs> two little kids. What yeah. before before this this the bombshell hit, what was how how were you changing as a person once fatherhood hit? Well, the idea was to uh, create a, a, a community in the small town south of Chapel Hill where we were living called Pittsburgh so to, of young parents so we mm. got a bunch of our friends to move there and we had babies and so we'd sort of you know try to sort of look mm -hmm. after each other that whole thing ended up going to pieces I mean I I was a mess because I was sad and resentful that I didn't have the band anymore. I'll be honest with you. But also at the same time, again, you know, not news to people who have kids, but like I was present at the birth of both my kids and a fucking door opened, like especially with Evelyn, right? Where mm -hmm. I'm there and it's happening. And then she, <laughs> she comes out blue as a blueberry and I swear to God, it just a door opened and I walked through that door. I mean, I was transformed. That's it. You don't there. You don't go back. And my face changed because I was smiling so much. Like literally <laughs> I'd get line. I got yeah. lines in my face from just smiling all the time. And God, it's hard. But, <laughs> you know, where you're like. I don't believe that you're breathing. You know, when the one month old child is taking yeah. a nap, you're like, I don't see, I don't see you breathing. I'm going to wake you up <laughs> I know, I know. My, because my I don't wife. believe. I mean, I remember the drive home from the, from the women's center where we showed up as two people and we leave as three people. And I'm like, I've got to drive this fucking car home. like this. No, I am not, I cannot, that that's a level of responsibility that I'm not. When they had me fill out the paperwork for, for mother, I wrote my wife's name and for father, I wrote my dad's name because I, I just was not understanding yeah. what the new reality was anyway. Um, so it, so in that sense, it's transformative and, um, I did the best I could. Um, and, and had, I just have a lot of cool memories of like yeah. watching Mr. Rogers again, since I was, like I was three or something when Mr. Rogers right. came on the air. You know, I loved Mr. Rogers. I, of course, I wasn't watching Mr. Rogers. And then I saw him again, burst into tears, you know, yeah. watching him with Evelyn and stuff. Um, it's like me with like when I put music on, we, we started when he was young, put Rafi back on. And then everything just like 
opened back up for me. That was my childhood, just listening to that music. You kind of just like trans transport yourself back to being a child and being like, I oh, love yeah. this stuff. Oh, and Christmas, and uh, you know, you get to relive yeah. the thing that you were way too old and cynical to remember, you know, to to embody, and then there it is. And Evelyn, especially, could quite an ear and could mm. pick out instruments in a song. I'm talking about like when she was four. She would hum the organ part or something, and I'd be like, yeah. wow, okay. I remember one time we were driving in the car, and I was playing Little Richard stuff when he was on mm. specialty, you know. Yeah. She, Who is this? I said, this is Little Richard. And she goes, no, he should be called Big Richard. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. He should be. That's, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, just to, to kind of circle back to what we were talking about earlier, one of the uh, one of the reasons why you know I even asked you on I, I even knew kind of knew your story. Um, so fellow Triangle area musician Snooze, Britt mm, Brit yeah. Harper Uzel. Yeah. Um, yes, I I interviewed him in 2010 uh, for a, a indie publication with my friend. That okay, so went away okay, pretty quickly. And, and by the but, way, and, without taking anything away from Ben Folds, you can see yeah. precisely where. Ben Folds got a lot of his stuff. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, yeah. like I was, you Snooze know. He's just so I, fucking good. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. And he was telling me, because this was, I guess, a year or two after Snooze Fest, when he got diagnosed from cancer. Yes. He said you were one of the first people to reach out to yeah, him. Absolutely. And, and I hardly, because, I don't think I really knew who he was. Yeah. And does, and that sense of community. I mean, what was, I mean... Did, he didn't did, want did, it. He did, didn't want people to play a benefit right, show right, for him. Right. Well, I, and so right, I. But, yeah. Go ahead with your question. Because because uh, I'll come back to that. But I, what I wanted to say was, you know, you reaching out within the music community. Did this? Did the music community reach out and help you? Oh fuck when yeah. your son was, oh my God, was coming, yeah. coming up. Yeah. Oh yeah. There were benefit shows, and I just stood there crying. Yeah. Um, and did. I mean, it was this, you were still like close enough to Chapel Hill. So a lot of it was. The oh, people God. Yeah. That you, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, they came out in fucking droves. And, and the cradle and friends would just put it together because I was incapable. I, I was really because, you know, Eston was diagnosed a week after his mom moved out. Oh, wow. Oh, so it was not good for daddy. So Daddy we, we, was not doing well, and I was were already you, were, on. Were my, you with the kids? Were you with? Were you we were trading or, off, but okay. dude, you know, Evelyn yeah. was six, and Eston was oh. whatever, three and a half. It was, it was, it was bad, and not that that marriage should have lasted, right. but just the timing was extra sucks. And, but I, yeah, I, I remember the benefit show at the cradle and people people putting it together. I don't even remember if I fucking played. But music's already really important, right? Music is already yeah. transformative. Music, especially for people like us, is already forged the path on which we walk, you know? Yeah. But like in terms of what it can do in a time of extremis and need is beyond anything else i think and what it can express emotionally is is beyond anything that can be expressed verbally and so i felt 
seen, loved, and lifted up and supported, and people have my back, and the dumb, stupid financial shit was something that they were going to fucking pitch in on, and and many people pitched in in many other ways, too. Mm. Again, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, right? but I wouldn't trade it for the world. And so when Snooze got sick, I was like, fuck this, we're going to, you know, of course... We're going to do this. And he was something like, I don't want to be a poster child. I'm like, it's really not about you, asshole. Well, I mean, you know, and and his whole, in his situation, like, I mean, I don't know, you know, what kind of, I'm not, it doesn't matter, like with the royalties and stuff, but him being, not even having been able to crack into that upper echelon of music, he is literally, he's got, you know, that's all he does is music and he's got no benefits and stuff like that. Oh God. And in that, you can't you need i mean the fact that and he and he's still dealing with it which is it, it sucks but he's, like he's way outlasted yeah what he should have done yeah. by rights that show i remember really well i remember playing that show you know we 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 started out talking about cbgbs and maxwells and 930 and these clubs where in in the rear view people revere them And they do the same thing with musicians. They will let you fucking starve. Just starve. And talk about how great your records are. And and this is a societal thing. This is a choice that we make as a society. You know, you're not going to get health insurance. Uh, This is whatever this frivolity you're doing. But of course, you're you're you are involved in something that is the well that makes so much fucking money for a lot yeah. of people and, but not you. And, it, and is the culture of our society. And it's, and it's the, you know, one of the greatest contributions of the United States to world art is pop music, blues music, rock and roll music and jazz music. And then, you know, film. Yeah. Um, still a, 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 a thoroughgoing and, um, purposeful devaluation of the artist and so it should never never be the case that somebody has to go fund me their goddamn funeral expenses or like keep this person from dying you know of a disease um or throw a benefit and god bless the people who do the benefits but like yeah. jesus the whole I, the the fact that they have to exist is is a, is kind yes. of monstrous yeah. in a way anyway yeah. um still a socialist hey uh, this is it's one of the reasons i'm a public educator it's like you know it's yeah. at least in in you know in a state in like new jersey where they we still have you know have some bit of uh clout and stuff like that because i know north carolina but that's a whole other thing it's a it's oh a, it's a, god <laughs> yeah. um so anyway so your kids you were mentioning your, your daughter being able to, to pick out instruments yeah are they into music do they play do they evelyn played music and would pick and would and would play sati by ear <laughs> again like this is so not anything i was ever able to do Eston likes music but he didn't play he doesn't play um, we talk about it though. But this is the button though. I wanted to t- you talk about being an educator. One of the horrible things about being treated for cancer um, mm-hmm. is that he was basically lifted out of a race that he'd hardly even started. So he's right. 
um, kindergarten or something, you know. Yeah. And then whoop, he's, he's out. So all of the sort of like skills of socialization, because, you know, with those kids, they put a port in there so they can draw blood and put in um, chemo. And they're very, 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 very wary of these kids going septic. So because it'll kill you quick, it'll right. take you out in a couple hours. And so if they're like, if he's got a fever of more than 100.2, you got to go to the ER. The problem is, is that the treatments that they give him utterly destroy, right, his, his immune system. So he was always getting fevers, always going to the ER and then waiting for a bed and then being admitted up on the ward and just forever, constantly. So he was lifted out of that race. And then because he was on steroids, which end up killing the little horrible uh, cancer cells, it wasn't yeah. because he was losing weight because of chemo. It actually really helped suppress the disease itself. And because I, well, we were so stricken, uh, he could eat whatever he wanted. He would just get these butter croissants from mm. the local bakery and stuff. And so, and then in addition periodically they would it was necessary because this is really this thing's a real fucker it hides out in your spinal fluid so they would have to give him a spinal tap they would have to shoot chemo up into his spinal fluid now i remember taking him to that and his doctor is phenomenal the head of the program fucking amazing the head of the head of the department dr gold at unc pediatric oncology an absolute fucking Remarkable man. But there came a point where they made me leave the room. <laughs> so I take him in there and there's the bed. And they've got the anesthesiologist and the whole thing. And the medicine is this like viscous white stuff. And they're like, okay, got to go. And I'm like, oh. And I had to leave him. Like when I left him when he got his port put in. Mm -hmm. The doctor was like, do you have any questions? I'm like, yeah, do you know what you're doing? Are you any good at this? I do, I do not want to let this child out of my sight. So I just go pace up and down the sidewalk and smoke cigarettes. And the reason I tell you all this is because all of those things, I realized in, with a kind of a shock, were analogous to what I experienced being a rock star when I was a rock mm. star for six months. The I was traumatized by the idea of him being knocked out and this stuff being shot up. He loved it. He would talk about how he wanted to have the white medicine again. He talked about how he wanted to go back on the table again, how much he loved the white medicine. And my memories were mm -hmm. 180 degrees. It was traumatizing for me to have that experience or to have him up on the ward a lot of the time. He was taken out of his social circle like I like I was. And so that was sort of alienating and and um he didn't he couldn't really sort of fit back in when it was to, and, and then it ended very abruptly. And when it did end very abruptly, mm. people were like, "Okay, well this is great. You're not being treated for cancer anymore, but all the good shit went away." And he had to go yeah. participate and he had to go to school and he couldn't really socialize. He had a hard time making friends and he loved the drugs. And I was like, "Oh fuck, it's what I went through." Um mm. in in 1999 in 2000 it's weird and that's what my book was about when i wrote hell it was basically like this this parallel track um mm. 
and I and I've come to understand um, in in many ways um, centering myself um, that um, fame is like it's a cancer, you know what it mm. does to you attitudinally, um, how sort of perverse it is, and and how it relies on exponential growth. Uh, what it does to the person who's embodying it is not terribly different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. you're welcome. That's, that's, so, yeah. now I'm on your show bringing you down. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's all good. And, and you know, we've been talking a lot. I, I have a couple more questions. One yeah. is I want to swing back to the writing because I just yes. will listen to the audio version of your uh short story about the haunted <laughs> house that you lived in yes. and I, I and it was it's called uh the nan was it uh um, we salted nanny yeah we salted nanny if any yeah, if you guys are up. still listening you need to check this out it is the craziest story and i in it's 100 percent true right this it's 100% is 100 uh, percent true not that it I, is not that one can prove these things and, and right. not that it matters if anyone believes it or not right but what it, i say is that the the reason it is not a work of fiction is because it's so narratively fucked up. Like fictional <laughs> ghost stories are like, and it was, it ended up being the ghost right. of old man Jenkins who died, you know, and you, and it, everything's wrapped up with a bow. This was just chaos. It was just chaos. Well, it was a, it's, so, yeah. So we're, so you're like, I wanted to ask because you lived there for like a, a just over a year or just under, under a year, year whatever. Yeah, like yeah. Nine months, nine and months, way too long. Was your daughter in high school at the time or was yes. she? Yes. So, how yes. does this affect her? Not good. Like not in good. Her school There's work that thing in like, there where she where she's having a sleepover with her yeah, yeah, friend, yeah. and her friend's like, "You didn't tell me this house was haunted," <laughs> because that old that old woman was standing at the foot of the bed staring at me when I woke up, and I'm like, "Oh God, oh my God." And then Evelyn. There's a thing, I'm not a particularly sensitive person, although I had my own experiences there, but my yeah. partner, Brooklyn, who's with me at the time, we had just started our relationship, um, and now we're all married people, is a sensitive person. And if you get more, more than one sensitive person, it tends to amplify. And so they would have experiences. And, Evelyn, and we have a couple of times when all three of us would have the same experience. Mm. Um but it would happen more to it would be more directed toward the female presenting people Interesting. yeah uh not good really yeah. not good i i'd always been interested in the paranormal and then i had that experience and i'm like fuck this um really like if you're lucky ghosts are basically drunks in a bar and they just babble on yeah. about whatever crap they want to keep talking about and they don't care about you or anything else and if you're not lucky you're going to get the life energy sucked out of your fucking body like it's not yeah that was is, not is a this, happy place is this the only place like that you experienced something like this or have you well you like that guys... yeah on that level that was insane you know and after that we moved to new orleans where nothing <laughs> happened the most haunted town in the fucking world and nothing yeah. happened now We've continued to have some experiences, but that place was bedlam. Yeah. And I and and even then, all the shit that is in that story. So what happened was we moved to New Orleans, and Evelyn came with us, and we just put that place out of our minds. And then one night we're out to dinner with friends, and we're telling ghost stories, and we start talking about Nanny, and an hour goes by, and I'm like, 
I listened to a podcast called Astonishing Legends, and they have this phrase, I think it's called like, shit, I'm not going to get it right, Josh, but it's like paranormal boredom. There's a thing that happens with some people who are abducted or have UFO encounters or paranormal encounters where they just become very blasé about it. Mm. And it's some kind of coping mechanism, even though what's happening is extraordinary and unprecedented in their lives. They can just not seem to care. And I realized, oh my God, this was insane. So I literally just started collecting the stories. Do you remember this? What happened here? What happened here? And all the shit that I wrote in that, in that, in that, um, I don't know what you call it, essay. There's half again more that I need. I didn't even write about. It just wasn't in a fucking room. Oh my god! Besides the the supernatural element, I have to say the history lessons that I learned mm. in there about what was the whole thing. I think you did a wonderful job. Thank you. Kind of inter interweaving that. And I learned. Was, I learned it too. I didn't know. I knew yeah. one of the ten things about that house that I ended yeah. up writing. You know. And just the whole Daniel, how Daniel Boone kind of fit in there was was kind of interesting as well. <laughs> the Fourteenth Colony, yeah. Transylvania Colony. It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. But and and it's a trope, I think, in a way where white people. And this is maybe a matter of months after that kid killed all those people in that church in Charleston. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, so I was in a process of understanding where I came from a little better mm. than I had done. The whole thing was, was great. And um, I just wanted, I wanted it to kind of circle back because it was something I wanted to ask initially and, and to talk about the rain, but because it's incredibly it involved, popular it was, on yeah. the site, apparently like it's, it's very, insanely it's, popular, which is weird have, to me. Well, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's hopefully going to help some promotion with your, your upcoming book and stuff. Like that, <laughs> <speaking>. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the guy that wrote that fucked up. <laughs> Ghost, it's a, I, I gotta story. say, look, it's a great, it, it, it is truly, an, it, it was an enjoy. I don't, I, I like to listen more than I like to read sure, books, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the narrative was so well done. Yeah, so that I guy did a good, that guy did a good well, job. No, no, I meant your, 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 oh, thank you, your yeah. manuscript. Well, was, I tell great. you one of the reasons is, is that I don't consider anything I write finished until I read it out loud to Brooklyn. And mm. when I read it out loud, all of the dumb overwriting and dumb mistakes show up instantly and I'm like, no, 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 no. And you just clean it up and then then it just flows a lot better. Gotcha. So hopefully that was a that is a readable piece. Yeah. Right. Even though I I, I could go edit now and yeah. fix it. like to ask our guests what you've been listening to so like three artists songs whatever that you've been been digging lately okay of course as usual most of the people i like are dead <laughs> however that band big thief fucking rules mm. and i don't remember the name of the woman but that is a gifted songwriter um they're great i saw them we saw them play in saxba hall um fantastic fucking band Tried to tell you I didn't know where to stay. You believe she can see through, cutting at the silent clay. The relief back in deep blue, fed 
I've been putting together like seasonal playlists. Um, trying to think of what. Hold on, let me consult it's okay. my. It's um, okay. Uh, I I will say I absolutely adore Eric Satie. Classical because his classical. You know, quote unquote or? classical. He's he lived uh, in um, Montmartre in the. Um, he was writing in the 1880s, 1890s. He died in 1926. Okay completely changed the form and you have people like john cage in the 40s who are like look there's two there's two paths there's beethoven and there's sati and fuck Mm. beethoven so all minimalism all ambient music he's the guy he's the dad listen to his shit fucking amazing extraordinary from 1960 the 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 amplified trace players in some of these cuban bands like um like chocolate isus australia's which i you know i'm butchering it but uh chapotin where they're playing six stringed instruments that look sort of like mandolins but they're Mm. running them through a little melty amp where it just sounds it's just completely overdriven in a way that just there's a song by i believe it's chocolate called la broca Probably recorded in 1960. Can't remember the name of the trace player. Oh my God, it's badassery. It's ridiculous badassery. And then whatever, Stan Getz and Stockholm with all those motherfuckers. You know, with um, that baritone sax player. Here's a guy, um, Lars Gulen. Lars Gulen, L-A-R-S, Lars Gulen. Better than any American Barry sax player. Forget it, hands down. Better than Mulligan. Better mm. than all those motherfuckers that everybody and those guys were great. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Lars Golan, ridiculous monster. Mm. Um look for him, look for a song called Danny's Dream, recorded in nineteen fifty five awesome, that he awesome, wrote about awesome. his kid. God almighty, what tone? What tone on a baritone? Complete complete mastery all the way up and down the range of the instrument. Those things will fight you. Like a like a tenor will fight you. Thank you. 
Tom, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I, oh, I mean, yeah, I, I I'm sure we it. could have talked for the next six Probably, hours yeah. into the night. Yeah. So it's just cool um, to talk to another person, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but and this a is great, man. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for thinking of me and and um, and for being this engaged. I really appreciate it. No, of course, man. And I'm looking forward to all your projects. So thanks again yeah. for coming on. Anytime. And uh, again, I thank you. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Little pigs, let me in. Not by the hair of a chinny chin chin. I'm going to grab my fellows down off the shelf. If you want something done, you better do it yourself. Thanks for listening to this episode. And a special thanks to Tom Maxwell for coming on to the show. I had a great time talking with him and appreciated his openness on the topics that we discussed. If you want to follow Tom on social media, the only place you can find him right now is on Mastodon. His handle is at Tommy Yum, that's T-O-M-M-Y-U-M, at M-S-T-D-N dot social. Again, that's at Tommy Yum at M-S-T-D-N dot social. In terms of his music, all of the Squirrel Nut Zipper albums he was a part of can be found on all major streaming services. You can also find... Tom Maxwell and the Minor Drag on those same streaming services. Other than that, you won't be able to find his other solo work like his first album, Sam Sarah, or the Maxwell Mosier Project. However, if you would like to hear the Sam Sarah album, shoot me an email and I'll hook you up. Tom has already given me the okay to do so. If you are interested in Tom's writing, the book Hell can be found on all the major online booksellers. And I will post a link to the short story, We Salted Nanny, in the podcast description. I cannot recommend enough that you should check that out. Whether this is your first time or your 20th time, I really appreciate everyone checking out the podcast and would love for you to subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. If you like or even love the podcast, go ahead and give us an honest review. Or, you know, just tell a friend about us. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Dad Rocks Pod, as well as on Facebook by just searching up Dad Rocks Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. If you want to check out the music you've heard on this episode in full, well, at least most of it, we have a playlist which should be linked in the podcast description. Once again, thanks for listening today. And remember, dads, you rock.